Part Two, Chapter Three of Tom Brown's School Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. Tom Brown's School Days by Thomas Hughes, Part Two, Chapter Three. Arthur makes a friend. Let nature be your teacher. Sweet is the law which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things. We murder to dissect. Enough of science and art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. Wordsworth. About six weeks after the beginning of the half, as Tom and Arthur were sitting one night before supper, beginning their verses, Arthur suddenly stopped and looked up and said, "'Tom, do you know anything of Martin?' "'Yes,' said Tom, taking his hand out of his back hair, and delighted to throw his gradus ad parnassum onto the sofa. "'I know him pretty well. He's a very good fellow, but as mad as a hatter. He's called Madman, you know, and never was such a fellow for getting all sorts of rum things about him.' He tamed two snakes last half, and used to carry them about in his pocket, and I'll be bound he's got some hedgehogs and rats in his cupboard now, and no one knows what besides. "'I should very much like to know him,' said Arthur. "'He was next to me in the form to-day, and he'd lost his book and looked over mine, and he seemed so kind and gentle that I liked him very much.' "'Ah, poor madman, he's always losing his books,' said Tom, "'and getting called up and floored because he hasn't got them.' "'I like him all the better,' said Arthur. "'Well, he's great fun, I can tell you,' said Tom, "'throwing himself back on the sofa and chuckling at the remembrance. "'We had such a game with him one day last half. "'He had been kicking up horrid stinks for some time in his study, "'till I suppose some fellow told Mary and she told the doctor. "'Anyhow, one day, a little before dinner, "'when he came down from the library, "'the doctor, instead of going home, came striding into the hall.' East and I and five or six other fellows were at the fire, and preciously we stared, for he don't come in like that once a year, unless it's a wet day and there's a fight in the hall. East, says he, just come and show me Martin's study. Oh, here's a game, whispered the rest of us, and we all cut upstairs after the doctor, East leading. As we got into the new row, which was hardly wide enough to hold the doctor and his gown, click, 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 we heard in the old madman's den. Then that stopped all of a sudden, and the bolts went too like fun. The madman knew East's step, and thought there was going to be a siege. "'It's the doctor, Martin. He's here and wants to see you,' sings out East. Then the bolts went back slowly, and the door opened, and there was the old madman standing, looking precious scared, his jacket off, his shirt-sleeves up to his elbows, and his long skinny arms all covered with anchors and arrows and letters, tattooed in with gunpowder like a sailor-boy's, and a stink fit to knock you down coming out. "'Twas all the doctor could do to stand his ground, and East and I, who were looking in under his arms, held our noses tight. The old magpie was standing on the window-sill, all his feathers drooping, and looking disgusted and half-poisoned. "'What can you be about, Martin?' says the doctor. "'You really mustn't go on in this way. "'You're a nuisance to the whole passage.' "'Please, sir, I was only mixing up this powder. "'There isn't any harm in it. 
and the madman seized nervously on his pestle and mortar to show the doctor the harmlessness of his pursuits, and went on pounding, click, click, click. He hadn't given six clicks before, puff, up went the hole into a great blaze, away went the pestle and mortar across the study, and back we tumbled into the passage. The magpie fluttered down into the court, swearing, and the madman danced out, howling, with his fingers in his mouth. The doctor caught hold of him, and called us to fetch some water. "'There, you silly fellow,' said he, quite pleased, though, to find he wasn't much hurt. "'You see, you don't know the least what you're doing with all those things, and now, mind, you must give up practising chemistry by yourself.' Then he took hold of his arm and looked at it, and I saw he had to bite his lip, and his eyes twinkled, but he said, quite grave, "'Here, you see, you've been making all these foolish marks on yourself, which you can never get out, and you'll be very sorry for it in a year or two. Now come down to the housekeeper's room, and let us see if you are hurt.' And away went the two, and we all stayed and had a regular turn-out of the den, till Martin came back with his hand bandaged and turned us out. However, I'll go and see what he's after, and tell him to come in after prayers to supper. And away went Tom to find the boy in question, who dwelt in a little study by himself in New Row. The aforesaid Martin, whom Arthur had taken such a fancy for, was one of those unfortunates who were at that time of day, and are, I fear, still, quite out of their place at a public school. If we knew how to use our boys, Martin would have been seized upon and educated as a natural philosopher. He had a passion for birds, beasts, and insects, and knew more of them and their habits than anyone in rugby, except perhaps the doctor, who knew everything. He was also an experimental chemist on a small scale, and had made unto himself an electric machine, from which it was his greatest pleasure and glory to administer small shocks to any small boys who were rash enough to venture into his study. And this was by no means an adventure free from excitement, for besides the probability of a snake dropping onto your head, or twining lovingly up your leg, or a rat getting into your breeches pocket in search of food, there was the animal and chemical odour to be faced, which always hung about the den, and the chance of being blown up in some of the many experiments which Martin was always trying, with the most wondrous results in the shape of explosions and smells that mortal boy ever heard of. Of course, poor Martin, in consequence of his pursuits, had become an Ishmaelite in the house. In the first place, he half-poisoned all his neighbours, and they in turn were always on the lookout to pounce upon any of his numerous livestock and drive him frantic by enticing his pet old magpie out of his window into a neighbouring study, and making the disreputable old bird drunk on toast soaked in beer and sugar. Then Martin, for all his sins, inhabited a study looking into a small court some ten feet across, the window of which was completely commanded by those of the studies opposite in the sick-room row, these latter being at a slightly higher elevation. East, and another boy of an equally tormenting and ingenious turn of mind, now lived exactly opposite, and had expended huge pains and time in the preparation of instruments of annoyance for the behoof of Martin and his live colony. One morning an old basket made its appearance, suspended by a short cord outside Martin's window, in which were deposited an amateur nest containing four young hungry jackdaws, the pride and glory of Martin's life, for the time being, and which he was currently asserted to have hatched upon his own person. 
Early in the morning and late at night he was to be seen half out of window, administering to the varied wants of his callow brood. After deep cogitation, East and his chum had spliced a knife onto the end of a fishing-rod, and having watched Martin out, had, after half an hour's severe sawing, cut the string by which the basket was suspended, and tumbled it onto the pavement below, with hideous remonstrance from the occupants. Poor Martin, returning from his short absence, collected the fragments and replaced his brood, except the one whose neck had been broken in the descent, in their old location, suspending them this time by string and wire twisted together, defiant of any sharp instrument which his persecutors could command. But like the Russian engineers at Sevastopol, East and his chum had an answer for every move of the adversary, and the next day had mounted a gun in the shape of a pea-shooter upon the ledge of their window, trained so as to bear exactly upon the spot which Martin had to occupy while tending his nurslings. The moment he began to feed, they began to shoot. In vain did the enemy himself invest in a pea-shooter, and endeavour to answer the fire while he fed the young birds with his other hand. His attention was divided, and his shots flew wild, while every one of theirs told on his face and hands, and drove him into howlings and imprecations. He had been driven to ensconce the nest in a corner of his already too well-filled den. His door was barricaded by a set of ingenious bolts of his own invention, for the sieges were frequent by the neighbours when any unusually ambrosial odour spread itself from the den to the neighbouring studies. The door-panels were in a normal state of smash, but the frame of the door resisted all besiegers, and behind it the owner carried on his varied pursuits, much in the same state of mind, I should fancy, as a border farmer lived in, in the days of the moss-troopers, when his hold might be summoned or his cattle carried off at any minute of night or day. "'Open, Martin, old boy. It's only I, Tom Brown.' "'Oh, very well. Stop a moment.' One bolt went back. "'You're sure East isn't there?' "'No, no, hang it. Open.' Tom gave a kick. The other bolt creaked, and he entered the den. Den indeed it was, about five feet six inches long by five feet wide and seven feet high. About six tattered school-books and a few chemical books, taxidermy, Stanley on birds, and an odd volume of Buick, the latter in much better preservation, occupied the top shelves. The other shelves, where they had not been cut away and used by the owner for other purposes, were fitted up for the abiding places of birds, beasts, and reptiles. There was no attempt at carpet or curtain. The table was entirely occupied by the great work of Martin, the electric machine, which was covered carefully with the remains of his tablecloth. The jackdaw cage occupied one wall, and the other was adorned by a small hatchet, a pair of climbing irons, and his tin candle-box, in which he was for the time being endeavouring to raise a hopeful young family of field-mice. As nothing should be let to lie useless, it was well that the candle-box was thus occupied, for candles Martin never had. A pound was issued to him weekly, as to the other boys, but as candles were available capital and easily exchangeable for birds' eggs or young birds, Martin's pound invariably found its way, in a few hours, to Howlett's the bird-fanciers in the Bilton Road, who would give a hawk's or a nightingale's egg, or a young linnet in exchange. Martin's ingenuity was therefore for ever on the rack to supply himself with a light. 
Just now he had hit upon a grand invention, and the den was lighted by a flaring cotton wick, issuing from a ginger-beer bottle full of some doleful composition. When light altogether failed him, Martin would loaf about by the fires in the passages or hall, after the manner of digs, and try to do his verses or learn his lines by the firelight. "'Well, old boy, you haven't got any sweeter in the den this half. How that stuff in the bottle stinks! Never mind, I ain't going to stop. But you come up after prayers to our study. You know young Arthur. We've got grey study. We'll have a good supper and talk about bird-nesting.' Martin was evidently highly pleased at the invitation, and promised to be up without fail. As soon as prayers were over, and the sixth and fifth form boys had withdrawn to the aristocratic seclusion of their own room, and the rest, or democracy, had sat down to their supper in the hall, Tom and Arthur, having secured their allowances of bread and cheese, started on their feet to catch the eye of the preposter of the week, who remained in charge during supper, walking up and down the hall. He happened to be an easy-going fellow, so they got a pleasant nod to their "'Please may I go out?' and away they scrambled to prepare for Martin a sumptuous banquet. This Tom had insisted on, for he was in great delight on the occasion, the reason of which delight must be expounded. The fact was that this was the first attempt at a friendship of his own which Arthur had made, and Tom hailed it as a grand step. The ease with which he himself had become hail fellow well met with anybody, and blundered into and out of twenty friendships a half year, made him sometimes sorry and sometimes angry at Arthur's reserve and loneliness. True, Arthur was always pleasant and even jolly with any boys who came with Tom to their study, but Tom felt that it was only through him, as it were, that his chum associated with others, and that but for him Arthur would have been dwelling in a wilderness. This increased his consciousness of responsibility, and though he hadn't reasoned it out and made it clear to himself, yet somehow he knew that this responsibility, this trust which he had taken on him without thinking about it, head over heels in fact, was the centre and turning point of his school life, that which was to make him or mar him, his appointed work and trial for the time being. And Tom was becoming a new boy, though with frequent tumbles in the dirt and perpetual hard battle with himself, and was daily growing in manfulness and thoughtfulness, as every high-couraged and well-principled boy must, when he finds himself for the first time consciously at grips with self and the devil. Already he could turn almost without a sigh from the school gates, from which had just scampered off East and three or four others of his own particular set, bound for some jolly lark not quite according to law, and involving probably a row with louts, keepers or farm labourers, the skipping dinner or calling over, some of Phoebe Jennings's beer, and a very possible flogging at the end of it as a relish. He had quite got over the stage in which he would grumble to himself, "'Well, hang it, it's very hard of the doctor to have saddled me with Arthur. Why couldn't he have chummed him with Fogey or Tomkin, or any of the fellows who never do anything but walk around the close and finish their copies the first day they're set?' But although this was past, he longed, and felt that he was right in longing, for more time for the legitimate pastimes of cricket, fives, bathing and fishing, within bounds, in which Arthur could not yet be his companion, and he felt that when the young'un, as he now generally called him, had found a pursuit and some other friend for himself, 
he should be able to give more time to the education of his own body with a clear conscience. And now what he so wished for had come to pass. He almost hailed it as a special providence, as indeed it was, but not for the reasons he gave for it, what providences are, that Arthur should have singled out Martin of all fellows for a friend. The old madman is the very fellow, thought he. He will take him scrambling over half the country after birds' eggs and flowers, make him run and swim and climb like an Indian, and not teach him a word of anything bad, or keep him from his lessons. What luck! And so, with more than his usual heartiness, he dived into his cupboard and hauled out an old knuckle-bone of ham, and two or three bottles of beer, together with the solemn pewter only used on state occasions while Arthur, equally elated at the easy accomplishment of his first act of volition in the joint establishment, produced from his side a bottle of pickles and a pot of jam, and cleared the table. In a minute or two the noise of the boys coming up from supper was heard, and Martin knocked and was admitted, bearing his bread and cheese, and the three fell to with a hearty good will upon the viands, talking faster than they ate, for all shyness disappeared in a moment before Tom's bottled beer and hospitable ways. Here's Arthur, a regular young town-mouse, with a natural taste for the woods, Martin, longing to break his neck climbing trees, and with a passion for young snakes. "'Well, I say,' sputtered out Martin eagerly, "'will you come to-morrow, both of you, to Caldicott Spinney, then? For I know of a kestrel's nest up a fir-tree. I can't get at it without help, and, Brown, you can climb against any one.' "'Oh, yes, do let us go,' said Arthur. "'I never saw a hawk's nest, nor a hawk's egg.' "'You just come down to my study, then, and I'll show you five sorts,' said Martin. "'Aye, the old madman has got the best collection in the house, out and out,' said Tom. And then Martin, warming with unaccustomed good cheer and the chance of a convert, launched out into a proposed bird-nesting campaign, betraying all manner of important secrets.' a golden-crested wren's nest near Butlin's Mound, a moorhen who was sitting on nine eggs in a pond down the Barby Road, and a kingfisher's nest in a corner of the old canal above Brownsover Mill. He had heard, he said, that no one had ever got a kingfisher's nest out perfect, and that the British Museum, or the government, or somebody, had offered one hundred pounds to anyone who could bring them a nest and eggs not damaged, in the middle of which astounding announcement to which the others were listening with open ears, and already considering the application of the hundred pounds, came a knock on the door, and East's voice was heard craving admittance. "'There's Harry,' said Tom. "'We'll let him in. I'll keep him steady, Martin. I thought the old boy would smell out the supper.' The fact was that Tom's heart had already smitten him for not asking his feeder Socrates to the feast, although only an extempore affair and though prudence and the desire to get Martin and Arthur together alone at first had overcome his scruples, he was now heartily glad to open the door, broach another bottle of beer, and hand over the old ham-knuckle to the searching of his old friend's pocket-knife. "'Ah, you greedy vagabonds!' said East, with his mouth full. "'I knew there was something going on when I saw you cut off out of hall so quick with your suppers. What a stunning tap, Tom! You are a wonner for bottling the swipes!' I've had practice enough for the sixth in my time, and it's hard if I haven't picked up a wrinkle or two for my own benefit. Well, old madman, and how goes the bird-nesting campaign? How's Howlett? 
I expect the young rooks will be out in another fortnight, and then my turn comes. There'll be no young rooks fit for pies for a month yet. Shows how much you know about it, rejoined Martin, who, though very good friends with East, regarded him with considerable suspicion for his propensity to practical jokes. Scott knows nothing and cares for nothing but grub and mischief, said Tom, but young rook pie, especially when you've had to climb for them, is very pretty eating. However, I say, Scud, we're all going after a hawk's nest to-morrow, in Caldecott Spinney, and if you'll come and behave yourself, we'll have a stunning climb. And a bathe in Aganippe. Hooray! I'm your man. No, no, no bathing in Aganippe. That's where our betters go. Well, well, never mind. I'm for the hawk's nest and anything that turns up. And the bottled beer being finished, and his hunger appeased, East departed to his study. That sneak Jones, as he informed them, who had just got into the sixth, and occupied the next study, having instituted a nightly visitation upon East and his chum, to their no small discomfort. When he was gone, Martin rose to follow, but Tom stopped him. "'No one goes near New Row,' said he, "'so you may just as well stop here and do your verses, "'and then we'll have some more talk. "'We'll be no end quiet. "'Besides, no proposter comes here now. "'We haven't been visited once this half.' "'So the table was cleared, the cloth restored, "'and the three fell to work with Gradus and Dictionary "'upon the morning's vulgus. "'They were three very fair examples "'of the way in which such tasks were done at Rugby,' in the consulship of Plancus, and doubtless the method is little changed, for there is nothing new under the sun, especially at schools. Now be it known unto all you boys who are at schools which do not rejoice in the time-honoured institution of the Vulgus, commonly supposed to have been established by William of Wickham at Winchester, and imported to Rugby, by Arnold, more for the sake of the lines which were learnt by heart with it, than for its own intrinsic value, as I have always understood that it is a short exercise in Greek or Latin verse, on a given subject, the minimum number of lines being fixed for each form. The master of the form gave out at fourth lesson on the previous day the subject for next morning's vulgus, and at first lesson each boy had to bring his vulgus ready to be looked over, and with the vulgus a certain number of lines from one of the Latin or Greek poets then being construed in the form had to be got by heart. The master at first lesson called up each boy in the form in order, and put him on in the lines. If he couldn't say them, or seemed to say them by reading them off the master's or some other boy's book who stood near, he was sent back, and went below all the boys who did so say, or seemed to say them. But in either case his vulgus was looked over by the master, who gave and entered in his book, to the credit or discredit of the boy, so many marks as the composition merited. At Rugby, vulgus and lines were the first lesson every other day in the week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, and as there were thirty-eight weeks in the school year, it is obvious to the meanest capacity that the master of each form had to set one hundred and fourteen subjects every year, two hundred and twenty-eight every two years, and so on. Now to persons of moderate invention this was a considerable task, and human nature, being prone to repeat itself, it will not be wondered that the masters gave the same subject sometimes over again after a certain lapse of time. To meet and rebuke this bad habit of the masters, the schoolboy mind, with its accustomed ingenuity, 
had invented an elaborate system of tradition. Almost every boy kept his own vulgus written out in a book, and these books were duly handed down from boy to boy, till, if the tradition has gone on till now, I suppose the popular boys, in whose hands bequeathed vulgus books have accumulated, are prepared with three or four vulguses on any subject in heaven or earth, or in more worlds than one, which an unfortunate master can pitch upon. At any rate, such lucky fellows had generally one for themselves and one for a friend in my time. The only objection to the traditionary method of doing your vulguses was the risk that the successions might have become confused, and so that you and another follower of traditions should show up the same identical vulgus some fine morning, in which case, when it happened, considerable grief was the result. But when did such risk hinder boys or men from shortcuts and pleasant paths? Now in the study that night, Tom was the upholder of the traditionary method of vulgus doing. He carefully produced two large vulgus books, and began diving into them, and picking out a line here and an ending there, tags as they were vulgarly called, till he had gotten all that he thought he could make fit. He then proceeded to patch his tags together with the help of his gradus, producing an incongruous and feeble result of eight elegiac lines, the minimum quantity for his form, and finishing up with two highly moral lines extra, making ten in all, which he cribbed entire from one of his books, beginning, O genus humanum, and which he himself must have used a dozen times before, whenever an unfortunate or wicked hero, of whatever nation or language under the sun, was the subject. Indeed, he began to have great doubts whether the master wouldn't remember them, and so only throw them in as extra lines, because in any case they would call off attention from the other tags, and if detected, being extra lines, he wouldn't be sent back to do more in their place, while if they passed muster again he would get marks for them. The second method, pursued by Martin, may be called the dogged or prosaic method. He, no more than Tom, took any pleasure in the task, but having no old vulgus books of his own, or any one's else, could not follow the traditionary method, for which too, as Tom remarked, he hadn't the genius. Martin then proceeded to write down eight lines in English, of the most matter-of-fact kind, the first that came into his head, and to convert these, line by line, by main force of gradus and dictionary, into Latin that would scan. This was all he cared for, to produce eight lines with no false quantities or concords. Whether the words were apt, or what the sense was, mattered nothing, and as the article was all new, not a line beyond the minimum did the followers of the dogged method ever produce. The third, or artistic method, was Arthur's. He considered first what point in the character or event which was the subject could most neatly be brought out within the limits of a vulgus, trying always to get his idea into the eight lines, but not binding himself to ten or even twelve lines if he couldn't do this. He then set to work as much as possible without gradus or other help to clothe his idea in appropriate Latin or Greek, and would not be satisfied till he had polished it well up with the aptest and most poetic words and phrases he could get at. A fourth method indeed was used in the school, but of too simple a kind to require a comment. 
it may be called the vicarious method, obtained amongst big boys of lazy or bullying habits, and consisted simply in making clever boys whom they could thrash do their whole vulgus for them, and construe it to them afterwards, which latter is a method not to be encouraged, and which I strongly advise you all not to practice. Of the others, you will find the traditionary method most troublesome, unless you can steal your vulgus's whole, experto crede, and that the artistic method pays the best both in marks and other ways. The vulgus's being finished by nine o'clock, and Martin having rejoiced above measure in the abundance of light and of gradus and dictionary and other conveniences almost unknown to him for getting through the work, and having been pressed by Arthur to come and do his verses there whenever he liked, the three boys went down to Martin's den, and Arthur was initiated into the lore of bird's eggs to his great delight. The exquisite colouring and forms astonished and charmed him, who had scarcely ever seen any but a hen's egg or an ostrich's, and by the time he was lugged away to bed he had learned the names of at least twenty sorts, and dreamed of the glorious perils of tree-climbing, and that he had found a rock's egg in the island as big as Sinbad's and clouded like a titlark's, in blowing which Martin and he had nearly been drowned in the yoke. End of Part 2 Chapter 3